reading this morning from Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, and speaking of the Lord. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys can take a seat. Thanks, Miss Paula. Morning again, everybody. My name is Sean, the lead pastor teacher pastor here for Redemption Peoria. Uh, glad you're here. We are in the middle of the book of Ephesians, if you're new, and uh, um, we're in this, this passage, as part of this passage where um, verses 3 through 14, if you look at your Bibles, is all one sentence in Greek, okay? So um, we're breaking up this section of scripture, this one big sentence, I think you find, sir, um, this one big sentence with, um, with, with, I don't know, probably four or five different sections. And uh, the premise of 3 through 14, the underlining tone is soteriology. It's the idea um, or the, the doctrine of how God saves. And so we've been talking a lot about um, different forms and avenues, which I'm going to read uh, some previous verses in a second, and how we got here. Um, but before I do that, I want to pray. Uh, just pray over our text that God would give us eyes to be able to see the text right and hear it right. Uh, there's a lot of complicated topics that we've even devoted an outside class to as we go through this section of scripture. And so um, we just want to have God's spirit be in the room with us. And I mean that not to be overly spiritual, but I really believe these are just words on the page. Honestly, without the spirit moving, there's nothing that we can do or I can communicate uh, that will build our faith. So we need his word to be able to do that. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. And God, we uh, were reminded that um, you are a rock And um, now we pray that we would have something to grab onto in your word, to hold tight to. Uh, We pray, God, that you'd remind us of your goodness and restoring power and redemption. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me me go back um, and read uh, verses 3 through 6 for you, okay? So if you weren't here, there's some language in there. It's pretty complicated. Let me read it. Uh, And then explain a couple of things. This is what it said in verses 3 through 6, leading up to our text. All right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And the question that we asked is, what are those spiritual blessings and where are they in the heavenly places? Okay? And we talked about the heavenly places are not this dichotomy, this deism that God has separated from us, this dualism, and we're down here on earth, but rather there's an intermingling. The, the, the fact that um, you are an emotional, physical, mental, and spiritual person is something to be reckoned with, and these spiritual blessings intertwine all of that. So spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So we stopped and we said, that's tough, right? But let's call the Bible what it is. Uh, can you turn this down? If you wouldn't mind turning this down, I feel like this is really loud and I want to yell and this microphone is not allowing me to do such things. <laughs> um, so what, what, what we see immediately is something we've got to wrestle with. And it's this language. It's in the Bible. What you do with it 
I mean, you've got to do the exegetical work to figure it out. I put in front of us that he chose us before the foundation of the world means he chose us before the foundation of the world. Okay? So we read it, just brass tacks, and saw it for what it is. And he chose us, us being believers in Christ, before the foundation of the world. And, and if we didn't like that, it, it got a little worse for us because then it said this, in him, or I'm sorry, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So if it was maybe he saw before time, he, he looked down the, the corridors of time, and that's why he chose us, we're told here that's not the case. He predestined, he predetermined to choose us. And it wasn't by our will, it wasn't by our doing, no, it was according to his purpose, his will. Now, that caused a bunch of turmoil, and I get it, I do. Um, as a matter of fact, that outside class, it starts this coming Monday. Uh, you can go on our website and log on for it. You can log on, actually, to both of our classes. Next Sunday starts the little plug here. But next Sunday starts the, the plug for the theology and film class that uh, Troy Kinney is doing as well. And then we have this class on Monday just to hash out these, these words. Election, predestination. When, when we hear atonement, what does that mean? So we're going to go through that in that class, and we get that there's some dissonance there. But more than anything, what I want to continue to put in front of you is the last line that we read. To the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So whatever you do with election and predestination, here's what Paul does with it. Thank you, God. Thank you. Your grace is so good. And as a matter of fact, verses 3 through 14, the whole, the whole premise of what it should be doing, it's written in such a rhythm, this Hebrew rhythm, uh, that is meant to cause praise. It's meant to cause worship. 3 through 14 is meant to be in the reckoning of, of worshiping God. Now, the reason that's important is all the dissonance that goes in your mind, they're good questions. And we'll get to them and we'll talk through them. But for now, we have a heart of praise. 3 through 14 is meant to be pocketed in and have us cause his glorious grace. That's what it's for. And so with that idea, we pick up in verse 7. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read verses 7, um, 8, uh, 9, and 10. Uh, 7, 8, and 9 are going to lead us to this climax of verse 10. Verse 10 is, is pointing us towards something and in, in all that's going on. So um, we've been elect, chosen, how language you want to use, predestined. Now, this is according to his, uh, his glorious plan, and then we're, we're um, left with this statement. He's going to almost start this new rhythm in talking about soteriology. Verse 7, it says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Let's stop. Now, the words in there, forgiveness of his blood, uh, forgiveness in his blood, our trespasses, redemption. Um, if you're not a believer in here, those words are, are not something you usually use, right? No one's redeemed. You don't go to your boss like, I just, I need to be redeemed in his blood today. Um, and even as believers, we use this, but I don't know to the extent that we actually know what's going on. So let's talk for a second. Um, <clears throat> here's something we can know about you and I, okay? Doesn't matter what human has walked this earth. Here's what we know biblically. Every single one of them has been made in the image of God. Some passive image of God. Some very aggressive image of God. In, in all of this, whether you're hyper-mercy, um, whether you want vengeance, there is part of you, all that's going on, though broken because of Genesis 3, that you are made in the image of God. And one of the things that you bear God's image, some more than others, is the word justice. It's in you. It's innately in you. And maybe some, more, you know, I'm far more quick to bring down the wrath of justice than my wife. She's like, well, I'm like, no, it's spanking time, Okay. <laughs> 
But regardless of where you are on that perspective, there is a bit of justice in you. And the reason that is true is because you are wired. You are made in God's image. So why is that there? Well, what do we do with this? So let's just talk about justice very quickly. Let's say um, I go out of here and I'm kicking it in the, the lobby area. And one of you come up here and go, I hate you. I hate the way you talk. I hate your disgustingly good looks. I hate, I hate, I I just, I hate you. And you just punch me right in the face. Okay. Now in that moment, what you have done is you've created a void. Okay. Because, um, this is what sin does in general. When something, an act of aggression or an injustice has taken place, there's something on the table that you have put. Now, one of us has to eat that. One of us has to take that. In that moment, after you punch me, you go, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Well, that removed the the, the issue. I was still punched in the face, okay? Now, in that moment, I could choose to eat it and go, well, now my pride hurts. My face hurts. But I forgive you. I will feel the brunt of what took place. I chose to, to eat that injustice. I chose to take that injustice on myself. Or... I can say, hey, that's cool, but an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and I punch you right back. And in that moment, you feel the void, and you go, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I punched you, you punched me, and that's fair. Justice has been served. What we see biblically is this conundrum we don't know what to do with, and it's Christianity 101. It's the idea that we are feeling the void of what the original symbol, the original representative of mankind did. Adam, standing before God, essentially punched God in the face. And we've been doing it ever since. And now there's a void. There is this separation. And in setting in this separation, God has a decision. He can eat that void. He can eat what's on the table. Or he can have you feel the wrath. He can punch you back. Now, What we know is it's a fancy term called penal substitutionary atonement. The idea that Jesus ends up dying for um, that injustice. He ends up feeling the wrath. He gets punched in the face. And when we read the language, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Here's what I want you to know about that first word, redemption. Though you were elect, chosen before the foundation of the world, you were still stolen. You were still held captive because of what Adam had done. You were, in a word, a slave to someone else, to something else. As a matter of fact, that's what the word originally in the Roman, it wasn't used only biblically, it was used in the Roman Empire all the time. And 99% of the time it was used in regards to slavery. Now, not colonial slavery, not the way that we process slavery, a whole different slavery, which we'll cover later on in Ephesians. But for now, just know you're walking through the towns of uh, any town of Rome and you see maybe the, the, the main, uh, in the province of Rome, in the main corridor of Rome, you see a group of people and you have a decent amount of money. You can, in that moment, redeem them. You can buy them from slavery. This is actually one of the definitions that a, a commentator used. Redemption is an act of God by which he himself pays as a ransom the price of sin which has outraged his holiness. So, so um, we now are subject to sin. If you don't believe me, listen to Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set you free. Free from what? Free from what? What has he set you free? Why is this word redemption used? What's on the table? Listen to this in, in Romans 6, 17, uh, verses 17, then 20 and 22. I just want you to listen to the language here. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin. Did you hear that? 
If you're a believer in here, at one point, you were a slave to sin. If you're not a believer in here, you may disagree, but what the Bible just said is you are a slave to sin. You think you're walking your own path. You think you have your own way. You think you're free, but the Bible, whether you agree or not, just said you are absolutely a slave. You are a slave of sin and have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which uh, you once were committed. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, you who are free in regards to righteousness. Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin. Do you hear what's going on? Do you hear the rhythm, the cadence that's put in front of us? The reason that you have redemption through his blood is because you were a slave to sin. What's so unfortunate about this is that the believers in the room know this is Christianity 101, and unfortunately, we don't believe it biblically. We know it. I mean, you could do what I just did. You can lay out what redemption is. But redemption is not redemption. It's, it's, not, it's not truly understood. It's not a theological premise without it stirring your soul. Can you just look back for a moment? Man, some of you maybe were, were saved as a kid. Do, do you not remember growing up in the church and thinking that you were so awesome because you were a Christian, that your righteousness is why God loved you? Do you not remember those moments? Man, some of you are sitting in this room right now, and it's been a month. Do you remember how trapped you were? How much of a slave you were? He's redeemed you from that, man. He's redeemed you from that. You've been set free, and he did it through his blood. He, he, he did it through his sacrifice. And in that, the language gets, we have forgiveness of our trespasses. We punched God in the face, but he chose to fill the void. He chose to take it on himself. Now, how did he do that? How can he choose before the foundation of the world a people? They be sinners, sin against him. How can we be so far from God and he do something so amazing? It's the next statement. It says this. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. You ready? According to the riches of his grace. Now you're walking down Rome. You see a group of slaves. and You say, I want to redeem them. And you've got money to do it. I I love this because according to the riches of his grace, you're going to hear some language for the first time that we're going to hear in the rest of the book of Ephesians. The terms riches of his grace is not the first time it's used. Listen to some of this. We see it in 1.7, according to the riches of his grace. 1.18, we're going to see it again. What are the riches of his glory? In 2.7, the surpassing riches of his grace. 3.8, the unfathomable riches of Christ. 3.16, according to the riches of his glory. So I need you to imagine uh, college students in the room. You love accruing yourself some student loan debt, right? You love it. Those of you who are out of college, you love having it. I need you to imagine that someone comes up and go, I know you owe 40 G's right now. I want to cover that. I want to cover that. Now, just for a second, I need you to imagine what you would do. Like you would be so blown away. And, and, And a recognition in this moment that we can just sit on the fact that his unfathomable riches, how, how deep his pockets go, he has in that, in all of that, the riches of his grace redeemed you. He has covered. Listen to me. The only way I know how to stir your heart when you hear this text is maybe to bring to remembrance, maybe to recall situations, but you need to know this. 
you've done some, some pretty terrible things for some of you in this room. You feel, even in this moment, that God could never love you. You feel like you keep sinning and you're never going to get it right. His riches, his pockets go deeper than your debt. Do you understand? There's nothing you can do. There's no distance you could travel. His riches are unfathomable. And that, it's through the immeasurable riches of Christ that he has redeemed you. But it doesn't end there. Verse 8, talking about his grace, the glorious uh, nature of his riches. You think that it's enough. Oh, he saved me. His grace is deep. Listen to this. In talking about his grace, which he lavished upon us. I love this language, lavish. It's the same word used that Jesus uses when he fed the 4,000 and the 5,000 and there were extra loaves and fishes left over. It's just the verb form of that. He has given you so much that there's a pouring over. That's going to be important in a second. He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So let's stop because when you see all wisdom and insight, this um, pockets us in a place. This puts us in a place to, to, to address something because here's the reality. You struggle with election. You struggle with predestination. But my question to you in talking about how big his grace is, how deep his pockets go is who gets to make the rules? I mean, your grandma, my grandma, she was a good person. She was. She, like, she loved my my dad, even enabled him in his drug addiction. Like, she just gave and gave and gave. But she didn't love Jesus. She didn't know Jesus. And I can look, and I can go, but my grandma was such a good person. Of course she's with God. But why do I get to make the rules? Everything that we're going to be talking about in understanding soteriology, the study of salvation, has the premise that God makes the rules, that it is, and I quote, according to, uh, that he's lavished us in all wisdom and insight, and it's according to his wisdom and insight. That, that, That it's not my wisdom, it's not my insight that he has lavished upon grace, it's not for me to look and say, well, this is right or that is wrong, because the reality is, Everybody has 10 different ways in which they would view who should and who should not be saved. Let's just call a spade what a spade is, right? Let's work outside of the Christian paradigm for a second. There are people who are willing to kill other people so they can get to heaven. They think they are a good person. Who are you to tell them they're wrong? Why is your standard of good different and better than their standard of good? If it's according to your standard of wisdom and insight, then it could be all cattywampus, but it's not. It's God's. This is according to God's standard, his insight, his wisdom. Cool? Okay. If I haven't been rough enough, let's get into verse 9. So what verses 9 and 10 are going to do is they're going to give us six little short uh, sentences. Okay? There's going to be three little statements in verse 9 and then three little statements in verse 10. They're about four to eight word statements, and you're going to see them, and we're going to break them down as we go. Okay? Now, we've been talking about redemption. We've been talking about salvation. But we've been talking about from the perspective of you and I. But there's something bigger going on. Our salvation is meant to go, okay, this is crazy, but it's meant to lead us to something else. You being saved, you being redeemed out of slavery, chosen, elect, predestined, all the language that it's been using up to this point is meant to to make us go, okay, well, now what? What, what, what do I do with this? And that's exactly what we're going to get into. It's going to be the first time it uses this word, mystery. Listen to this. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He's given us all wisdom and insight, making known to us 
the mystery of his will. Okay, this becomes really cool. Because now, if you're like a Bible, like, like you like studying it, you're like neat neck in theology, you, you love this stuff. The first question you have is, well, then what's the mystery? What is this mystery of his will? I want to know what the will of God is. Now, we get a glimpse in everything we've been talking about in redemption. Um, you could turn your Bibles real quick to three. Go over a couple pages. Chapter three, verses four and six. It talks about, talks about this mystery, okay? Track with me. I need you to put your theological thinking caps on. We're going to come full circle, but there's something important going on here, okay? Look at verse four. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, right? Verse five, which he has not made known to the sons of men, in other generations, as, he has, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So there's a mystery that God now has revealed in you. Do you understand? So let me say it like this. Elijah didn't know. David didn't know. Past generations didn't know. There's something different that you know about the mystery of God. Now it says this. It's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery is, we get a glimpse into a part of what the mystery is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What does that have to do? Here's what he's saying. From the beginning of of Yahweh, Jehovah God in the Old Testament, the way that he's been working is he's been working through a people. He's been working specifically through the Jews. But the mystery has been this. The plan was not just to set his, his sight strictly on the Jews, but one day have a mysterious plan to include all people. Now, at any point, anyone could be involved in the Jewish nation, follow the Jewish laws, but in this crazy, mysterious way, God has now opened it up for you and I to be saved. Now, you may feel like, well, that's cool, I guess, but here's what I need you to track with me. Don't let it go yet. Just stay with me. He now is telling us something, that God was doing something through the Jews, that now he has opened up to the Gentiles. That, that sounds weird, but listen to what he says. Let's keep going. A mystery uh, of his will according to his purpose. Again, it's set about according to his purpose. Here's the language, which he set forth in Christ. Now, I need you to hear this, okay? What we're trying to understand is the way that God works in salvation. He's been working in salvation all along in the Old Testament, and now he has opened it all up to all of us. But the way that you can understand this salvation truly is not through Buddha, is not through Hinduism, is not through polytheism, is not through pantheism, that that God is in everything and and not come studying or or worshiping rocks. No, the key to get the commercial, the Christmas story, the, the key to the code, drink your Ovaltine, remember this? The key, the ring key is Christ. He's the decoder. He's how we can understand what the mystery is. So we're not done. Jesus came and he's revealed what this mysterious plan is. I love it. You ready for this? He gets at what it is. Verse 10. Let's finish this thing out. Uh, According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, it's a plan for the fullness of time. Okay. So just so you know, there's two words in Greek for time. Chronos, where we get our word chronological from, means it's a set time, and kairos, which is a season period of time, meaning uh, uh, we can see it now in Christ. Jesus has now set a new period of time. So think of it like this. There was an old age, and Jesus came now in a new age. He's brought something different. He's the key to understanding everything. And then the word to. That word to is important because Christ has come to what's the mysterious plan? What is it? You ready? 
to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, I know you may not be like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Um, check it out. Turn your Bibles to Colossians. You're going to need to turn your, turn your Bibles there because I don't have it on the screen. Listen to this in Colossians chapter one, something we've read often, but I want you to listen to uh, uh, what happens here. Okay. Um, we're going to start, uh, let's start. I don't want to read all the 15. Um, let, yeah, let's start, I guess in 15 and then we'll go down. Okay. Just listen. If you don't have your Bible, um, you could grab a Bible on the way in from now on. If you want one, you can keep it. It's yours. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. This is talking about Christ, the firstborn, um, of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him, you ready? To reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now stop. We've just talked about that. Jesus, he is, and I quote, through him to reconcile to himself all things. Christ is reconciling all things. We're going to get there. He's reconciled all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. He's talking about all things. But the next two words in verse 22 or 21 are huge. Because in talking about all things, here's what we've done in the last hundred years. We've only focused on one thing. You. That his redemption, his salvation, his working, uniting power has only pertained to you. You've had redemption in God, but it's more. Listen, this is what it says, verse 21. And you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body uh, a flesh in his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Why does he have to say, and you? Is it not what he's been talking about and reconciling all things? No. No, it's not. He's doing more than just saving your soul. He's at your work. He's with your family. He's in the classroom. He's with your next door neighbor. He is uniting all things. Now, I don't disagree with the ESV very often, but I don't love the way that they have translated this word unite. It's, there's a better way to translate it. Um, so I said when there's a word that I think is worth blowing up, I'm going to put it on the screen. And this one might not be as helpful as when we looked at election or uh, predestination, but um, let me show you. So the first word in this stupid boot um, is ana. Um, the, the word Greek word starts with ana and it means up. Now it doesn't just mean up or down. It means like upwards, like moving towards something up towards something plus ana plus kephale. The word kephale just means head in, in, uh, Greek. And it's the idea, uh, to bring to head or to restore like, um, everything that your body does, your brain is the one that is telling it to do it. Right. And so we are up or bringing to head or restoring, and it's where we get the word anakafale, or to make whole and to unite. And you may feel like, well, that's a stretch. But um, what's being communicated here is more than just bringing together things. More appropriately, uh, some of the translations, let me read them to you. I don't have them, but listen to the KJV. It says this, 
that in this time and the fullness of times, he might gather together in one, okay? The NASB, which I know some of you have, he's summing up all things, or in the HCSB, I love this. You don't have to know these translations. Listen how they translate this one word, unite, to bring everything together. There's something called the Latin Vulgate. It was written by Jerome, early part of our Christian history. And in Latin, the way that he translates this word is to reestablish. So he would, and the Latin Vulgate says, as a plan for the fullness of time, to reestablish all things. Irenaeus says to recapitulate. So, so what do I think this, this word is trying to say? I, I get why they use the word unite, but I need you to track, stay, keep that theological thinking caps. Jesus has saved your soul, but hear me, that's a part of it. Let me tell you what he's doing. He is reuniting. Uh, Dallas Willard says there's no spiritual formation, there's only spiritual reformation. He is, in a sense, making you human again. Our representative, Adam, failed. And we have been broken ever since. And now we are less human. You think that the pleasure in pornography makes you feel the utmost joy. You think greed or anger or retribution in, in an area that you feel like you were wrong and you, you, you lash out. You think that, that that makes you feel full. But hear me, you're actually being less human. What Jesus is doing is he is reuniting. He is reestablishing humanity. But it's more than that. He is reestablishing, and I quote, all things to himself, things in heaven and things on earth. Look a couple verses down in, in the same chapter. Look at verses 20 and 23. And that he, Christ, uh, or that God, worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, uh, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Do you hear that language? That Jesus has rulers, authorities. So look at me. Jesus is restoring the spiritual world. Jesus is restoring the physical world. Jesus is restoring marriages. Jesus is restoring the brokenness in in the ways that you've been a neighbor. Jesus is all-encompassing, uniting. So hear me, this is the language that we use. For a long time, you grew up in the church and you believed a small gospel. Jesus saved you. I don't doubt it. He has, through his blood, given you redemption. But that redemption does not just apply to your soul. This is something I've said over and over and over again. We've tried to put in front of you over and over and over again. Because we really believe that all of life is all for Jesus. So um, there's a book that I've mentioned many times because I've tried to really in the last three years say I'm just going to focus in on about 25 to 30 books and really hone in on um, a certain group of theology, read outside of that camp as often as I can. But there's one book that I love and I continue to go, ba- go back to, and I've, I've quoted it quite a few times. It's a book called Creation Regained by Al Walters. He talks about this idea. Now, when we talk about salvation, here's what I want to do. I want to finish our time together and just melee you with quotes, okay? Because I want you to know this is not my idea that I'm putting in front of you, but it's something bigger. And I think guys before me have talked about it in the Reformed community for years. Unfortunately, and this is not a shot at Billy Sunday or Charles Finney or Billy Graham, but what they've brought to America 
and what they've brought to the modern Protestantism and evangelicalism is just the salvation of our soul. We've lost a big view of creation that God did not lose in Genesis 3. He's temporarily allowed Satan to be the ruler of this world. But in this age, the kingdom of God has come. That Jesus is reuniting things to the way they are supposed to be. You understand? And every time we talk about salvation, that's what we're talking about. You don't believe me. Al Walters. It is quite striking that virtually all of the basic words describing salvation in the Bible imply a return to an originally good state or situation. Acknowledging this, uh, acknowledging this, theologians have sometimes spoken of salvation as recreation. Not to imply that God scraps his early creation and in Christ Jesus makes a new one, but rather to suggest, you ready for this, that he hangs on to his fallen original creation and salvages it. He refuses to abandon the work of his hands. In fact, he sacrifices his own son to save his original project. The original good creation is to be restored. Do you understand the way that you process relationships is broken, but that will be restored one day. Like, I'm playing basketball, I'm just killing people, and God chooses to humble me with the the ankle, right? But I don't have to worry about the humbling in the new age, right? No, okay. Um, I wish it was like that. Um, My my point is this. Um, Let's go back to pornography. Um, God is going to restore the right view, the right way that we are to understand or to understand sex. Pornography is a distortion of that. So when God says, don't sleep with, your, with, uh, with this person before you get married, when God says, don't look at another woman or man with lust in your heart, it's not that he hates you. It's not that he's a killjoy. It's that he knows what it means to be fully human. And pornography and sex before marriage is a distortion of the way that things are supposed to be. So his law is pointing you back to truly being free, to truly being human. When he tells you to love your neighbor and forgive their trespasses, it's not because he wants you to be in a bad mood. It's not because he wants you to just constantly eat that void, but he knows that in restoring all things, including relationships, his law brings freedom. He he tells you not to steal in business to not to deplete the earth, not because he's some environmentally tree-hugging Jesus, but he knows that in his law, true humanity and freedom is found. He's pointing us back to the uniting of all things. And that's what Al Walters is saying. Every time we talk about salvation, he's restoring things to the way they're supposed to be. He goes on to say this, listen to this. The practical implications of that intention are legion. Marriage, should not be avoided by Christians, but sanctified. Emotions should not be repressed, but purified. Sexuality is not simply to be shunned, but redeemed. Politics should not be declared off limits, but reformed, or ought not to be pronounced worldly, but claimed for Christ. Business must no longer be relegated to the secular, secular world, but must be made to conform again to God-honoring standards. Every sector of human life yields such examples. This is why a part of the tradition that we're from, it's called the, 
kind of the Dutch Reformed tradition. There's a guy named Abraham Kuyper, and he has a famous quote. You might have heard of, heard of it if you haven't. Uh, it's in this statement. He was giving this address at this kind of quasi-graduation. He says this, there is not a square, there's not a square inch in the whole dominion of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Every sphere, the property your house is on, mine. Your children, mine. Your spouse, mine. That 15-minute break, mine. Everything Christ has dominion over, and he says, mine. This is good news. You want to know why this is good news? Because in Christ, true humanity is found. The restoration of all things. He is looking at all things, and he's saying... You're worried about Trump. You're worried about politics. You're worried about Republicans and Democrats. You're worried about the social gospel. I'm telling you, I am over all. I'm over all of it. You're worried about racial dissension, women's rights, abortion. I'm telling you, I look at all of creation and say, mine, mine. We have to hold on to this. I said I'm going to melee you with quotes. This is the last thing. Again, I want you just to listen to this. In every good endeavor, uh, Tim Keller says this. Christ is the origin and the destiny of every object you have ever seen, every person you have ever heard or encountered, every idea you have ever contemplated. Without his express, immediate, and personal uh, sustaining, this very instant, the object you see in front of you, you may now, with, with, or, I'm sorry, the object you see in front of you right now would cease to exist before you, and you could finish hearing, before you could finish hearing this sentence, and you would not outlast them. He is the past, the present, and the future of everything, and everyone you will ever touch, see, hear, smell, or taste, and of many more that you will never know existed. Furthermore, God's plan for the whole universe included you. It is to bring it all under Christ's rule. That's what he's doing. Through the power of the cross, he is bringing redemption to us, but he is bringing redemption, a reuniting, a reinstating of things in heaven and things on earth. He is restoring things back to the way they're supposed to be. And you can look all around the world and you can feel like it's more broken than ever. But hear me, as much as evil continues to grow, so does redemption. That, that, that Christ continues to move is an amazing thing, which brings me to my last point. It's how he's doing it, how he's growing his kingdom. And um, going back to our text, I, I wanna, want you to look at something. Um, go back to, to, in chapter one, verse four. It said this, even as he chose us in the foundation of the world, uh, in, in, uh, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Uh, when we came to that statement, we made a declaration that Jesus has not just elected you to be saved. Again, maybe you do something different with that verse, and that's okay. But you can't argue with the purpose behind it. He, he did it for such a reason that you would be holy and blameless. He did it with causality. He did it with intention. He did it with purpose, which means the people he redeemed are to be little pockets of redemption. That everywhere you and I go are to reflect that reuniting. That the reason we planted a church three years ago was not to bring another church on another street, 
But we believe wholeheartedly that the purpose we planted, and I said it over and over in the beginning, was for the purposes of mission. This is why in 2 Corinthians 5, you are called a fellow minister of reconciliation. This is why in 1 John 1, 5, that it says his light continues to shine. That Jesus is reuniting all things. He is restoring all things. And he has chosen, you ready? To do it through you. And you and I are terrible at it. It's his power. Every time you've been in a conversation with a neighbor and you go, wow, that's really good. Every time you've avoided sin and you looked at him or her and said, no, we're not doing this anymore. Every time you've engaged with your classmate, family member, friend. Every time you were a good worker at your job. And though you feel like it means nothing, though you feel like it's pointless, hear me. Just know he is uniting, reuniting all things back to himself. Which leads me to my last quote. Again, not on the screen, just listen. Hal Walters, again, in Creation Regain, he talks about all these examples that he gives, and then he says this. Humankind, which has botched its original mandate and the whole creation along with it, is given another chance in Christ. We are reinstated as God's messengers on the earth. And this is where I finish. The whole story of God is important in the way that you process your Christianity. Because when you just process a Platonistic view, uh, the idea that Plato has set and put in front of all of Western education, that there is this dichotomy between spiritual and physical, and you are forced to operate in those parameters is wrong. There's something more going on. And in our big view, as we look at the story of God, from the beginning, we were placed on the earth to do something. This is what's crazy. God set it up. God set creation And he told you and I to grow it. He told us to govern it. He told us to build houses. He told us to have families. Let's say Genesis 3 doesn't happen. iPads are still invented. Houses are still erected. Metropolises and cities still come into being. But without sin. Us as humans were meant to do that. We've just been doing it in sin. Because we botched it early on. Adam, as a representative, screwed this whole thing up. And now we're trying to figure it out. There are shards of goodness and there are shards of brokenness in our work and our relationships and the way we view ourselves and the way we view God. But Christ has given us another chance. You can return back to a subduer. You can return back to a governor. You can return back to an image bearer of God That is to work alongside of creation in all of life. This is good news. I'm grateful that he's reuniting all things in him. I'm grateful that we are a part of that. And I pray that Redemption Peoria, you are sitting in this room, you would know that those are our marching orders. He's called us to it. Let's be grateful. Let's pray.